0: Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you are with us here today, abiding in each and every heart that is called upon you as Savior. Lord, we ask that you would infill us and dwell us, open our ears, open our hearts and minds to your message today. Lord, may we hear you in what you're saying to each one of us, because you deal with us uniquely, and then live out what you've called us to. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. And uh, this is, of course, written by Paul, very powerful passage. Verse 8 is a well-known passage. And it says, Therefore, since we have been justified, just as if we've never sinned, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for the righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates King James says, "Commendeth His love for us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us." That is the key passage of our scripture. But God demonstrates His love towards us. Commendeth is an old English word, not used anymore. It dates back to the King James version, which the beginning of that was 411 years ago. So they talked some different. They used that word commendeth. But it comes from that root word, commends. And we understand commending something. That means we give it our voice of approval, that we uh, say this is worthy of your time, worthy of your interest. And so that's m- the meaning in that verse, but God commendeth. It means a little more than demonstrates. It means that God is, is honored, is glad to recommend that Jesus Christ came come and die for us. And that little phrase in there, while we were yet sinners, that's what's so powerful there. Paul says in that verse, he explains that some may die for a good person. And that's true. It happens every day. People do die for others. The soldier on the battlefield falls on a ger- grenade so his Fellow soldiers don't get wounded or killed. A parent puts themselves in danger to protect the life of their child. A Secret Service agent guarding the president will jump in front of a a bullet, a fired gun, in order to take that bullet instead of the president. There are many occasions where people will die for someone whom they deem worthy. But who will die for the murderer? who die for the adulterer, for the cheat, for the embezzler, for the liar, for the other persons that seek to do harm? None of us would really put down our life for someone like that, but Jesus Christ did. He died for each and every person. And in that, you know, we're all right there. We're all guilty of actions. We may not be an embezzler. We may not be a drunkard that beats their families when they come home. But Paul writes elsewhere in Rome, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We want to put grades on sin. And certainly in a moral sense, there is worse being a murderer taking someone's life senselessly as opposed to uh, taking a piece of gum from a store. That's moral difference. The problem is sin stands in the way of our fellowship with God for our entry into heaven, and sin is sin. Someone has said the ground is level at the cross. There's not hierarchies of of need for Christ. We all stand before Him in need. And amongst ourselves, within our society, we can consider some insignificant, some that don't really matter, some that are more grievous than others, and there's merit to that. But sin is what keeps us from that fellowship with God. And we need to remember that. God came to take care of that. And it's really interesting, in that verse, that starts out, But God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. A change in personage there, from God to Christ. Now, those of us in our theology, we understand the Trinity, we understand that the three are one. But this verse really brings out that transference that God and Jesus were equal, were uh, counterparts in that process. And it was God himself, through the person Jesus Christ, who came and took our sins upon himself and bore them to the cross. And so that's really a, a, a really powerful idea that we could miss if we don't pay attention to that. We celebrate God's compassion of love for us. It is joyous to think of His goodness to us, how He's healed us, how He's provided for us, how He works around the world to to help people, how we can pray, excuse me, how we can pray, and an answer comes through God Himself, through a friend, through a loved one, His love is so powerful and we read of Jesus' love throughout the New Testament. How when the disciples wanted to run off the little children, Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. When people didn't want him to minister and visit with and do things with the downcast, the trodden, the lepers, that's who Jesus wanted to be with. He loved each and every person. He cared about them. ministered to them and he seems to have wanted to be with them more than the religious people of his day. And we love that love. Somebody made a point sometime back and there's a difference about loving something and being in love. I love my Camaro. I enjoy driving it. I have the top down and just cruising along, but I'm not in love with my Camaro. That would be Weird. We can love a lot of things. We can love our home. We can love our city. We can love different material things, but we're not in love with them. We need to be in love with Jesus. He's in love with us. He loves us more than just an object, just a, one more of His creation. He loves us uniquely, He loves us personally and he he loves walking with us in that garden as he did with Adam and Eve. He wants to hear from you. He wants to talk with you. He is in love with us, and we need to be in love with him. but we love that compassion, but Christ's love has another edge to that sword. It has correction. We see that in John eight eleven with the woman called an adultery, the very in verse says, Jesus is saying, is no one, none of your accusers? And the woman replies, no man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn thee. And Jesus had the right to condemn her. He was the only one sinless. He was the only one perfect. He was God. And she violated his law stated thousands of years ago to Moses and the Ten Commandments but he didn't condemn her. He wouldn't put a stone to her. He knew she was being treated unjustly. He knew she was brought unfairly before him. So he says, I don't condemn you. But he goes on to say, but go and sin no more. The correction. Correction is a vital part of love. We have in Hebrews, the Apostle Paul talks about it, if it bring up Hebrews for me. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4 through 13 goes along like this. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. That's a pretty high bar there. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, but if you are not, then you are an illegitimate child and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the God of our Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness." No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed." That discipline's important. That discipline shows care for the individual shows care for our children. That's why we don't let them uh, eat pizza every meal or have ice cream uh, for their supper. We let them have those good treats, but we encourage them to eat the right foods, healthy foods. We encourage them to get off their video games and get outside and play because they need the exercise. There are many ways that we uh provide correction to our children. We provide discipline. It's not all punishment. Discipline is setting an orderly path. It's, it's giving a, a good system to follow so that you can be healthy, wise, wealthy hopefully, and do well in life. And we need that discipline. I saw a video on Facebook. I shared it, I believe. It was really poignant to me. It was a african-american pastor preaching and he was rolling off uh, very popular names in sports lebron james michael uh who's it? what's the last name jordan, jordan thank you uh, but all these different athletes and he brought out that each one of them has a coach and as good as they are they have that coach that observes what they're doing, how they're doing their particular sport, and makes corrections to what they're doing. Tiger Woods, great golfer, has a coach. On and on the list goes. It is uh, is a wise person who understands that as good as they are, they need someone observing, pointing out a, a, a weakness or Uh, perhaps a little glitch to their swing if it's in golf or the way they shoot their baskets. Why? So they can be better. So they can do better at their sports. So they can stay at the top of their game. They need a coach. We need a coach. And we should not be arrogant or refuse or show disdain for God's correction. The greatest athlete you can mention has a coach. The wise athlete receives that correction and applies it to their performance. And in this way, the athlete stays at the top of the game. How much truer is this practice for us Christians? The astute Christian acknowledges how we miss the mark, A, a way to say we sin. Sinning is missing the mark. Thinking about the targets, this... Church at one time had a very active archery program. And the the point of that, the way to get best, was to get that arrow in the mark every time, right dead center. Missing the mark is sinning. And we acknowledge that I missed the mark. I'm not perfect. I fail. And so the faithful and humble Christian receives that correction from the spiritual father, and then applies that correction to their life. Notice verse 12 in our passage from Hebrews. It says, Therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet. The subject in that verse is an implied subject. But it means you strengthen your arms. You strengthen. Strengthen your knees. God doesn't, in His discipline, He's not going to just snap and make Wes a lot stronger person. Wes has to do the work. He's not going to snap his fingers and make Wes a slimmer person. Wes has to do the work. And that's what this verse is saying. We receive the instruction. We receive the correction from God and through Him directly and through others. We have to make that application. That's where the discipline comes in. You strengthen your feeble arms. You strengthen your weak knees. And then it goes on, make level paths for your feet. What does that mean? I think it means that we make right choices. We don't go places we shouldn't go uh, in reality, but figuratively. We stay away. We practice a discipline of not indulging engaging in behaviors and activities and uh, ways of life that are contrary to the ways of God. We make a decision, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there. I want to, it's fun, but I'm not going to do it because it dishonors God and I want to serve Him and become like Him. And so we are encouraged and we are commanded, you strengthen your arms, you strengthen your knees, and you make right choices so that you have a level path. What's the good, you know, soon I will have a great neighborhood for walking. It really is, it's good and flat. Very little hills. I don't think I want to walk out here. Y'all got too many hills. It's nice and flat in my neighborhood. So I've got level pads for my feet, and that means I don't have to work as hard. Hills make hard work, make life hard. And sometimes as you go down, what's the trouble with going down? you got to come back up. Dr. Stanley of First Baptist Atlanta told the uh, occasion of when he uh, went to the Grand Canyon, and he chose to walk down. Got down to the bottom without any trouble. Well, what was the problem? He had to come back up, switch back after switch back after switch back. It's fun for us to let ourselves descend into some behaviors that are not good to us. They're fun. They're not good for us. They're fun to do. They're with our friends. But often, virtually always, we found our, find ourselves in a pit We have to dig ourselves out of whether it's financial whether it's habits we've developed that we need to break Uh, and so we are enjoined to make level paths make the right decisions as we go along and so at this time of year we Paul sorta to remember the Christ child emotionally we consider the babe in the manger We love the sentimentality of of that moment, although it was much uh, worse than we think of. But we do think about the hardship on his mother Mary, being so close to delivering Jesus and traveling from Nazareth of Galilee down to Jerusalem. It was not a level path. And while they show her on a donkey, and in many of the pictures we don't, know that's true, but even then it would be hard, dusty, dirty, and especially being so heavy with child. It was a hardship. We can gasp at the threat on their lives by King Herod as he sought to kill them, to kill the baby, and he didn't care about Mary and Joseph either. But in all that, hopefully that can help, help us realize his love for us. You know, Jesus didn't have to come that way God could have come down as a 30-something-year-old man and just introduced himself. But he took on humanity. And that humanity helps him and helps us relate to him because he lived as we live. He was a child. As a child, he didn't have perfect steps all along. He tripped and fell and hurt his knee. Mama had to take care of him. He probably worked with his dad, the carpenter, and got splinters in his hand, his hands calloused and tough from the work. He knew how to fish. He was a man's man. And so we can relate to him because he lived our humanity, and he knew the grief when Lazarus died. We see a picture of that when that verse we have of Jesus came to that place and said, Jesus wept, his heart broke. Over a loved one gone. We know that emotion, and so we can connect with him. It's written in another great psalm by Bill Gothard. He left the splendor of heaven, knowing his destiny. God, Jesus, they knew what they were facing in order to redeem us, but they still commendeth that is honored us by their actions. In that, God said, you're worth it to me. Not because of who we are or what we've done, but because we're his creation that he wants fellowship with. Because he sees inside us, he made us, he formed us, he gave us the attributes and abilities we have, and he wants to fellowship with that. So it was worth it to him. We were worth it to Him to come and suffer as He did, taking all the sins upon Him and dying on the cross. God doesn't tell us to clean up our act before coming to Him. He doesn't require us to get straightened out before He will act on our behalf. That's kind of our nature. He wants us to come just as I am. Our salvation is through Christ alone, through His gift. Doesn't mean we try to do good, but we don't try to clean up and get right before we come into His presence. His act, we receive His gift of redemption, salvation, and justification, and then He purifies us. He cleans us up. He puts a ring on our finger, a robe on our back, and He prepares a feast in our honor after we've come dirty, downtrodden, hopeless, and in despair. Then once we are that follower of His, He seals us with the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is a gift to us. It gives us wisdom and knowledge. It speaks to us along the way. It gives us strength to withstand the trials. It gives us assurance. And we are sealed that we can know that will never be apart again. We have him as a promise of heaven. In our last series, we talked about that little kitten hanging in there. There's another phrase from the 70s some of you will remember. Please be patient. God's not finished with me yet. God continues to mold us into his likeness. And until that day He calls us home, He will continue to do so. The greatest gift is to be like Him, to know Him, and we will one day. So we relish God's favor in the holiday season. We enjoy the beauty of Christmas, the fellowship of friends, the giving of gifts, the meals together, and that's right and good. Let us also embrace His love of discipline. He's making us like Christ, which is the best we could ever do. We're going to stand and sing now. If you don't know Christ in this way, then I I invite you to come speak with me now or later so that I can introduce you and explain one-on-one. If you need a church home that lifts up the name of Christ, that... Is striving to serve him and live for him. This one, this is one, not the only one, but it's one.